This is not a drill. This is real. Get real. Get real with Ralph. You are listening to Get Real with Ralph. Get real with Ralph. On AM 1050 WLIP. Good evening and welcome to Get Real with Ralph. I am your humble host, Ralph Nudie, coming to you live from the studios of AM 1050 WLIP in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Gurney, Illinois, and simulcast live from Kenosha to the Canary Islands and all across the world via our YouTube channel at GetRealWithRalph.com. That's GetRealWithRalph.com. Or you can tune in on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Ralph Nudie. First and foremost, I want to give a happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. Have mothers out there as well. Mothers are definitely one of the most special things we all have. Without them, there wouldn't be an us. A lot going on in the news, and we're going to tackle some of it. Not as much as usual, though, because we have some very special guests today, and we're going to be talking about the resurgence of manufacturing in the United States of America. Subject to touch. Thank you, folks, for tuning in, as always, on Get Real with Ralph. And we try to attack the issues of the day, whether they be national, on the state level, or even on the local level. And so much is happening on all of those levels here that we're, we're, we're not going to be able to tackle all of them. But I want to touch on some of them before we go to our first break. And then when I come back, I'm going to introduce some people to our listeners here who are really at the forefront of the solution to many of the problems that I believe that we are encountering as we speak right now. Anybody who's been listening to this program for any length of time, and especially since we've gone under quarantine, knows that I place a great deal of blame for what we're dealing with right now at the feet of the communist Chinese government. But I also put a lot of the blame right here at home. For far too long, we have been complacent. On top of being complacent, we have chased profits, we have chased cheap goods, and we haven't thought much about how to invest in our future as a country. As a matter of fact, we've been living off of the glory of our past. While corporate America is investing in other countries, our media groups are investing in other countries, our tech sector is investing in other countries, and we've been bled dry here all the way around when it comes to jobs to the point that we have become mostly a service sector economy. And as all of you are feeling the pain right now, when you are a service sector economy and 
you suddenly lose the ability to use your service sector, which is what's going on right now, businesses being shut down, you finally realize that if you're, if you're a nation that doesn't make or produce more than it's consuming, at some point in time, you're going to hit a brick wall. We have felt that brick wall over the past six weeks as our supply chains have been disrupted, as we have scurried to get what we thought were going to be much-needed medical supplies and information out of China. The Chinese government has a habit of lying to the rest of the world. This is not the first time this has happened, and the Chinese government has a history of being irresponsible when it comes to infectious disease. And we can stand here and wave our fingers and point them at them, but at the end of the day, it is going to be on us, the American people, and the ingenuity of the American people to find ways to bring our industry back to our country in a cost-effective way that doesn't disrupt our economy. Without doing so, we'll see more of the same of what we've seen in the last six weeks. It's exciting and pleasing to see that people are starting to wake up in this country, at least. There has been a litany of physicians who have now stood up to this excessive what our health departments, what, what our health experts are calling a quarantine. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, a quarantine is when you take sick people and you keep them away from the healthy so they don't infect them. That's not what we're doing here. This is the first time ever in our, in our country's history that we've quarantined the healthy, that we have put these draconian measures in place that have brought our economy to its absolute knees. But finally, people are starting to wake up. In the absence of data, it made a lot of sense to take a short pause and, and figure out what was going on. But as, as the data comes out more and more and more, and we look at the differences between our most populated cities in states that have lockdowns and our most populated cities in states that do not, and we look at the behaviors of what Sweden is doing, and we look at the need to have a herd mentality, it's becoming more apparent to more of the experts that if we don't change course with what we're doing pretty quick, we're going to get hit with a second wave of this and not know what hit us. But I feel like the American people are starting to wake up and, and come along. When we come back, we're going to be talking with two of what I consider the, 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 the captains of new industry in America. These are entrepreneurs. These are leaders who recognize that a smaller corporate America that can produce goods here in this country, at a lower cost, is a wave of the future. And I think you're going to be very interested in what they have to say. And I'll be bringing them to you right after this break. Get Real with Ralph. On AM 1050 WLIP. Nudie or GetRealWithRalph.com. We are back on the Get Real with Ralph show. That is a little bit of... Ozzy Osbourne, Mama, I'm coming home for all of the mothers out there. And as I mentioned in my opening monologue, today I have some, uh, some exciting guests with me that uh, I've come across uh, really by accident in the beginning, but I'm really glad I did. I'm, I'm glad I met these two gentlemen because they're doing something that I've been talking about on this program for a very long time and, and really ramped up talking about over the last six weeks as we have found ourselves so dependent on foreign manufacturing and foreign goods for everything that we do. 
And these two gentlemen are, are doing something about it, both of them. Uh, Cole Hatfield is with a company called Little Bear Manufacturing, and he consults manufacturers how to create processes that are efficient enough that they don't require as many people so they can be brought back into the United States. And uh, he consults companies in, in several different industries, and I'm going to let him explain himself to you when it comes to that. And James Breyer is on the forefront of a new electric vehicle company that is going to bring us electric vehicles for the rest of us. Of course, many people are already driving the Volt or maybe they're driving the Tesla because they want the sports car. But the number one vehicle that Americans are still driving are trucks and light-duty trucks and sport utility vehicles. And he has found a way to to bring that niche into the electric vehicle market. And I think that he's going to come in hot. I really do. So with that, I'd like to introduce the two of them. Cole, James, uh, we should be able to hear you guys. Welcome to the program. Let's see where we are with these guys. And we don't have them here just yet. Let's see what's going on. Guys, welcome to the program. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Hi, Ralph. Uh, hi. All right. So we have you in. I just, um, and we can hear you as well. Um, James, why don't you, um, why don't you go first? Tell us a little bit about uh, Hercules EV, which is your uh, manufacturing, uh, uh, vehicle manufacturing company, and uh, th this uh, niche that you're looking to uh, fill here. Yeah, thanks, Ralph. So Hercules EV uh, is an electric performance vehicle company um, integrating capability, high capability and luxury in a niche market segment. So we see um, performance trucks and off-road trucks being a growing segment uh, in North America, particularly. Um, people love their large vehicles, right? And so we look at this as an aspirational product, kind of the uh, merging of a supercar with your utility vehicle. And so uh, first version is the Alpha. It's a thousand horsepower, four motor uh, EV system. And it'll really just light up your, your adrenaline. I mean, it's, it's a high, high performance, high power, uh, but still very luxurious and comfortable product. So that's our, that's our core um, product niche. Um, but we really see this as an opportunity for a lot add a lot of fun and excitement towards electric vehicles. Not just about being clean. Now, I, I had a chance to uh, talk with you earlier today as we were prepping for the show, and uh, you, you took me to the website, which is HerculesEV.com. So for those of you that are listening at home and you want to see what these look like, uh, I, was, I was stunned by what a great-looking truck you've designed here. And, uh, of course... Uh, design and looks isn't everything. You need a truck that's going to be able to get the job done. Tell us a little bit about the power. What kind of power uh, does a truck like this have? Your truck is, is very powerful. Actually, more powerful than probably most people uh, uh, can fully comprehend because they're, what they're used to is a gasoline truck with a transmission. And so with our four-motor EVs, we can put 1,000 horsepower to the pavement. And, so, and that's at zero speed. So you can get all your torque. Uh, which is about 12,000 uh, foot-pounds of torque directly to the road. And so, and that's at all speeds up to about 85 miles an hour. So uh, you'll throw your head back and, and spin the wheels and screech the tires really at any speed up to about 80 miles an hour. 
Wow, that's impressive. And you said you have four motors. Explain to the uh, listeners why your vehicle has four motors. So the four motors are really about uh, control and performance. So it allows us to do uh, full four-wheel torque vectoring and active uh, stability control uh, in a dynamic uh, way. And so what we've done is it allows each wheel to apply torque, exactly how much torque it needs for a given condition. So if you're going around a curve or a corner, uh, the inside wheels will rotate uh, slightly slower than the outside wheels. And so what that allows is for the uh, computer controller to understand what your heading and direction is, your intent, and then keep you basically hugging the road uh, during any event, whether it's an intended uh, event or an unintended event, like a like an ice or a slip situation. And this so is going to put you at a max power at all times. This is going to put you at a severe advantage over a standard four wheel drive vehicle with, with with a traditional transmission, where you have to have a a, a system to allow for that slippage. Because uh, w w when you have a gas power motor and a transmission, if you try to do that on dry pavement, you can you can cause a lot of damage. But with a vehicle such as yours, because you have four separate motors and an intelligent system, obviously you can you can you can take a corner in four wheel drive on dry pavement and just about any speed, and uh, it's it's going to give you that, that that additional control that you could never get from a gas powered vehicle. Right, and it really changes the paradigm into an all the time all wheel drive at optimum torque and optimum power. So we're optimizing continuously as opposed to using like an open differential in a traditional vehicle where one wheel does spin slower than the other, but it also loses its power. And so while you're trying to apply power or uh, re retard power, like in a braking event, you can do braking and acceleration at the same time on different wheels uh, as needed. And uh, your, your braking is also done by those motors? Uh, so it's supplemented by the motors. So primary braking, uh, initial braking is regenerative. So that means it uses the electric machines to put that energy back in the battery. Um, and then at a certain amount of pedal, uh, brake pedal application, then the uh, ca traditional calipers will adhere and then brake the vehicle to a stop. But the electric machine does most of the work. And th this, this is an idea that you, you said you came up with a, a couple of Christmases ago, it sounds like, or at, at the day after Christmas, a couple of years ago, correct? So, yeah, I've been in the industry for about 25 years in electric vehicle uh, development programs and had been through a number of uh, very interesting projects, but never really something that was quite as near and dear to, to where I see the, the industry going. And so in 2018, the day after Christmas, I was watching the snow come down and, and thinking about, you know, kind of where I was headed and what we were doing and, you know, just seeing what was going on in the industry itself and said, you know, it's time. The technology's there, the market's there, it's been proven over and over. And let's apply this to big vehicles that people actually want that are really fun, really fun to drive. The ownership experience is better, really tailor it to what people want. And the technologies in manufacturing have also advanced to a point where small volume manufacturers can now compete with the big guys. And that's what you plan on doing is, is, is being a, a boutique provider of, of, of vehicles that fit, fit a niche that people want as opposed to trying to go head to head with the big guy, uh, you're able to keep the costs down so that you're competitive price-wise without having to mass produce. Correct. And so we're competitive price-wise, um, depending on what you consider competitive pricing to be. But as we've seen the industry, um, the 
the amount of luxury that's going into large SUVs and pickups is increasing. People really want um, kind of one product to drive and they want it to be fun. They also want it to be utilitarian to some extent, but with a nice level of equipment. And so what we looked at is that marketplace and said, they really, they can get that if you like a cowboy motif. Um, so, you know, you like to be wild west or, uh, but there's some urban folks that would like to have that kind of same thing going on. And so we're bringing something that's a little more contemporary in styling, a little more European interior, and then marrying that with a very capable uh, platform that really can do anything they want. It's got great ground clearance, great off-road capability, but the on-road capability and control is just fantastic. Now, Chris, you're, you're, you're entering the truck space as a pioneer in the electric vehicles because that, that really hasn't been done on, on this level before. One of the things that truck owners do end up wanting is, is towing capacity. And from what I understand, you have a pretty unique solution for that as well, correct? Yes. And so the towing capacity in ours, like I mentioned, you know, 12,000 plus uh, foot pounds of torque, it, it can pretty much tow anything you want. Um, but be, being a battery vehicle, we don't promise um, infinite towing, but we do have an option coming in a few, bring in a fuel cell range extender. For those who do heavy towing very frequently, it will basically use uh, gaseous hydrogen uh, and allow them to fill it up just like a regular gas tank. And so where there is a hydrogen infrastructure in place in California, in the Southwest, et cetera, um, and over the next uh, five years, uh, California and the federal government have uh, committed to increasing the number of fuel cell stations, the hydrogen stations, uh, to about 2,500 uh, stations uh, in the Western states. So it, there should be enough infrastructure there. If you are a real heavy hauler, this truck will not only do the work, but it can go as far as they want. Hey, I, I've been saying for years that, that hydrogen is, is one of the most underutilized technologies that we, that we have in this country. There's so much we can do with hydrogen power, and it's the, it's pretty easy to acquire. You, you have some, some trouble with stability, but that's gotten better at being able to keep the hydrogen stable now. But as far as acquiring the hydrogen, that's one of the easiest resources that we can get at because you literally take water and uh, it, it gets turned into hydrogen, which then uh, gets liquefied so that it ends up being more stable. Am I correct in, in, in that assertion? That's correct. And so the biggest challenge with hydrogen is the cost. And so it isn't yet cost competitive with gasoline. It's getting there. Um, but infrastructure will help that. Um, one of the interesting things is the uh, natural gas infrastructure that the U.S. already has is already compatible with hydrogen in certain saturations. So uh, in a natural pipeline, for example, you can pipe a concentration of, let's say, 20 percent hydrogen around the country as needed. So, and then strip that off or to your point, using uh, a reformer technology, which allows it to can, with energy, electrical energy, convert uh, pure water into hydrogen, compress that, and then use that for the fuel. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, I'm sure you're partnering up with, with plenty of other resource providers and finding ways to do that more effectively over time. Yes. And so focusing on the demand side, meaning if you have applications that will use hydrogen in medium duty trucks, light, uh, heavy light duty trucks and medium duty trucks, and then in recreational mobility products, that will drive the demand so that there's more investment in the infrastructure. And so we're looking at it from our point of view as a future proofing um, 
as that market's been promised to take off uh, for about the last 30 years, and we're still kind of five years out, um, just like we have over the course the last 30 years been five years out, uh, we think that it, it will take hold, um, especially because Japan and China have uh, jumped into hydrogen in a big way. Um, so we see the technology getting cheaper, the storage uh, mechanisms getting cheaper, and then the methodology for uh, creating the hydrogen becoming cheaper as global adoption happens in parallel to North American adoption. Wow, how exciting. Now, you have your first vehicles are going to be coming off of your uh, your assembly line sometime in the fall, you said, correct? Uh, late 2021. So I wouldn't characterize it as a fall because it's a oh, fall, fall plus a year. Fall of 21. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So you, you, you plan on being in production in 21 and, and starting to roll vehicles off in fall of 21. And uh, you're going to start this You're going to start this small and right as, as a boutique offering with a couple thousand vehicles a year. Is that correct? That's correct. And so we're looking at it as a, as a boutique offering, a, a very, it's a bit of a niche product to start, but as adoption happens, um, we do plan to cap our uh, capacity to stay in that niche realm um, because we want the customer to have the ability to have on-demand customization. And so we will customization um, and personalization on, uh, like I said, to order, as opposed to just offering a mass production vehicle. There's others out there that are good at that. They've been doing it for a hundred years. Sure. And instead of competing with them at their own game, you're, you're, you're creating your own game. Trying to create my own game. Exactly. And, and, that, and that's right. Now, now one of the, one of the, one of the consultants that you have worked with to help you get to this point uh, along the way is, is Cole Hatfield, who is on as well. He's a manufacturing consultant. Uh, Cole, I want to welcome you to the program as well. And it was Cole that introduced you and I. And, and I understand that, that Cole is uh, really consulting on the manufacturing process in a lot of different industries, not just the automotive, including uh, medical, military, and some other stuff as well. Uh, Cole, welcome to the program. I'm glad you're here as well. Thank you for having me, Ralph. Appreciate it. And uh, you you operate a company called Little Bear Manufacturing. Tell us a little bit about your company and what it does. Sure. Uh, just about uh, close to two years ago, I created this company to help to consult for exactly what kind of your, your opening to the show was. With so many companies uh, outsourcing manufacturing, they lost a lot of that skill set in the United States. I grew up in uh, electronics manufacturing background. And so companies, whether it's like James and Hercules or whether it's, uh, you know, one of my main um, companies that I work with, which is Loom Optic, uh, I help them try and set up domestic manufacturing capabilities uh, that vertically integrates their supply source and their supply chain all the way through. Now, vertical integration is something that somebody in the engineering field would understand, but uh, for for the people at home, explain to them a little bit about what that vertical manufacturing process is and, and, and why it is that process in and of itself is so important to bringing industry back to the United States. Well, right now we set up, uh, you know, you can't help it, but you have a manufacturing uh, supplies, all the components that go into manufacturing something. Uh, we use a, a tool in economics called specialization, right? And different countries uh, can specialize in uh, supplying different types of parts or components. And you're reliant on uh, sourcing these components from around the world. I.e., uh, lately you've probably heard of mass being manufactured, 
where we're dependent on China for melt-blown media. In the United States here, a lot of that uh, capability has been lacking. And so now that we are kind of stranglehold on trying to make mass in the United States, we can't get that uh, raw material, that raw good. Vertical integration uh, means for that, you would actually make your raw good in-house in your manufacturing plant, secure that, that capability in-house, and then you'd actually make your product and sell it to the customer and it, it builds a better uh, security. So instead of sourcing out the components, you're actually making your own components from the raw material as part of the manufacturing process. Yes, yes. And it, and it, it builds, uh, it's kind of, it's risk management, basically. You're reducing the risk. But the alternative is sometimes it costs more to do it that way. And you make up for that cost of more doing it that way by having less people involved in the process? Is that, is that one of the ways that you're able to manage costs? It's generally reliability. So you, you, when you promise a customer that you're going to deliver and you're going to deliver on time at a high quality, you have to do that. And in the United States here, more and more we've accepted that, well, if we can't get the good and we can't make the shipment on time, well, you know, the customer can wait. The old rule of the customer's always right kind of got thrown out the window. And uh, I just kind of disagree with that. And quite frankly, a lot of my, you know, the people that I consult to and my clients, they agree. And they believe in making American-made products from the ground up and making sure that they uh, deliver high quality and, and on-time shipments to their customers. Now, you're consulting with people in several different industries, from, from yes. medical, masks, to military, to automotive here, James Breyer. And it, it seems to me, after my conversation with you, with James, or several other people, that there is, there is, there is this trend now, this, this growing trend, that the thing to do is come back to manufacturing here in the United States. Do you see that being the trend all the way around? Oh, you bet. I mean, the, the company, uh, Little Bear here, wouldn't even have the opportunity if it wasn't for the amount of manufacturing coming back to the U.S. And uh, one, one of my main clients here, which uh, is Loom Optic, a really smart gentleman, to create a next generation epidural system. And we've been able to set up a facility, do the R&D and research, uh, partner with some incredible uh, clinics to be able to do the, um, to do the testing. and and everything was done here in the U.S. And even the raw goods, the components, uh, you know, plastic injection molding, everything's done local right here in the Midwest. And in most cases, it's done right in one in one location when you're doing these. Yes, we we, we utilize some uh, R and D and engineering teams out of California, and uh, we have our main development center right in uh, Spring Grove, Illinois. And so we're trying to hire and utilize uh, local talent and local resources. You don't see this as just a fad, do you? You, you see that the trend is going to be becoming self-reliant. Yeah, we, we have to. I mean, look at what happened with the uh, pharmaceutical industry. As soon as this COVID outbreak hit, uh, you know, we, we had a, a, the Chinese government. Uh, right away, they said that they uh, were going to start holding up uh, shipments of our pharmaceuticals. You know, we can't rely on that. We have to have some backup systems in the United States here. We have to be able to bring back manufacturing. And the bigger thing is we have to start uh, teaching and educating from the ground up 
uh, people that have capabilities. So, I mean, uh, tech, uh, tech colleges, engineering schools, things like that. It's going to be very uh, important in the coming years. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 that, and that's where we met. You're talking about finding talent, of course. Uh, I guess this is a question for the both of you. How long do you think it will take for us as a country to get to a place where we are self-reliant again if we really focus on this as a country? And do you think we have the intestinal fortitude to do it? I'll let you answer first, Cole. Okay. Uh, I think it really depends on what industry. It's kind of a complex question. Different industries have different things. But the biggest thing is going to be cost. Okay. When, uh, you know, a lot of companies have, have spent billions of dollars now in setting up manufacturing in China. And unless there is a, 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 a whether it's a political or a financial push to them uh, to come back to the U.S., there's really not going to be, uh, I don't see it happening anytime soon, to be honest with you. Well, I'd like to see it. Um, I, I'll give you examples. As long as you're able to produce pharmaceuticals for less than a penny per pill, and you're able to sell them for, you know, 50 or a hundred dollars a pop, uh, and, and it's a heavy labor industry, you're going to continue to run it in China. If you have, uh, if you have politicians, you have political uh, push to be able to you know, set some regulations of maybe 25, 50% of their manufacturing has to be domestic to secure that, then you're actually going to see some, some movement and things. So we need to start putting pressure on our leaders to put, put pressure on businesses uh, and, and make it financially uh, prohibitive for them to not do this. So you have to have a carrot and a stick in order to make this happen. Yeah, but we can do it in a smart way, though, and we can... You know, I, I believe in not just, you, you don't need to just force the industry. You don't need to, to, to club them. You need to work with them strategically to make them want to come back here. You know, work with them on taxation of the businesses, work with them on wanting to hire talent, uh, work with the different school systems to be able to produce that talent. You know, it comes from a, a lot of different areas, but uh, if, if you look at all of them and you build a complete package, then the companies will want to. I had a, yeah. I had a leading economy. Oh, James, you go ahead first. Well, and today, many businesses, are, they're incentivized to, to seek the lowest cost labor. They're incentivized to offload their resources uh, off their books because they don't get any kind of assistance or there's no tactical or strategic. Uh, it's all tactical, sorry, as opposed to a strategic outlook. They're looking at the shorter term profitability and where are they and if it is a like Cole mentioned, a heavy labor uh, intensive operation, they they're going to search out the lowest cost of labor. Where is that? Whether there's stability or not, geopolitical or otherwise, uh, without some incentive to stay here to do that um, or find better ways, whether it's through research dollars, whether it's through um, tax grants, incentives, etc., or collaboration with uh, uh, government agents, a little bit more emphasis on government contracts going to those who put their resources uh, in secure locations, North America, whether U.S. or Canada, but at least within the continent, as opposed to, you know, COVID has exposed a lot of cracks in the system. And so this, this could be a blessing in some ways, obviously not, not the loss of life, but the fact that we're facing this now 
uh, as opposed to 10 years from now or 15 years from now, this could be a real blessing that we got this this situation when it happened before it was too late, because it seems like we were on a on a on a real slippery slope where we were going to lose all of our manufacturing if we had kept at the pace we were with with outsourcing even as recent as as the last couple of years. Would would you agree with that sentiment? Generally, yes, uh, but we have started to see a trend as we mentioned earlier of actually electronics, high tech manufacturing starting to come back to the U.S. Uh, because they can do it with robotics and they can do it with the new technologies um, in additive manufacturing and other things. But electronics was the first to sort of kind of come back to the U.S., at least directionally. Um, but there's reasons why, um, or at least geopolitical reasons why uh, the government has to step in and create some boundaries. Um, there's certain technologies, certain areas of technology that um, the foreign or non-U.S. entities, they're just taking on the, the mantle to go f- push forward faster than we are. And we need to either incentivize uh, companies here to do so, um, or we will be left behind. And that is a position that uh, uh, the U.S. has not been in in a long time. And we do not want to fr- find ourselves at a, such a disadvantage to other world economies. We we have so many pieces of this that we're that we're failing at the theft of our intellectual property by Chinese companies, uh, the fact that we've been undercut labor wise, the fact that labor laws in the United States have made it cost prohibitive to do business here. On top of it all, and I think it's been the perfect storm of chasing business out of this country for so long, and you really have to get all of the moving pieces to start looking at things the other way. You you can't have as soon as companies start looking to bring business back into this country, big labor uh, trying to reassert their power and make it cost prohibitive for companies to do so. Uh, at the same time, you can't make you can't incentivize companies to leave the country by having them manufacture stuff outside the country with no incentive back in the country. So many people and, and young people, especially, have lost faith in capitalism. They they're in a school system that that really doesn't understand capitalism because most people in the school system haven't worked in a capitalist market. They went straight from high school to college to maybe graduate school and, and they're teaching. And so that's not an indictment of their character, but it's a it's definitely an indictment of their worldview or their world experience. And and I think that it, that it hurts definitely that we don't have more business people in education and we don't have more education in business and, and the two of those integrated as Cole said before. But I had an economist a couple of weeks ago who, who disagreed with me when it came to incentivizing businesses to come back because he was a complete free market capitalist and, and really believed in the idea that eventually in other countries that the, the price of labor would rise to the level that it is here and it would all even out. And, and that would be true maybe if we had a truly level playing field or a truly capitalist system. But we don't really – the problem with our capitalist system is that we have so much government involvement already picking winners and losers and, and, and companies – really lobbying for whatever it is they want that's going to fatten their bottom line instead of what's right for America. What can our average worker, our average employee, our average American citizen do to make it known that that's not acceptable to them and really really have a voice in the fact that that we need to start doing business back in this country in, in a way that their leaders are going to listen to them? Overall, it kind of starts from the top down, though. I mean, when you're looking at CEOs, 
that are uh, that know that they're going to be in a position for for less than five years, you know, three to four years in the U.S. Here, uh, a lot of their decision making is going to be extreme, and, and so they're going to make every decision to be able to prop up the company's uh, immediate profit profitability and get the largest return and uh, make this, the stockholders as happy as possible. And then they're going to move on to the next company. Once we kind of uh, eliminate that short-sighted viewpoint in a lot of the uh, large and our leaders of industry, I, I think it's going to start changing long-term uh, thinking of training, getting the right people in the right place and, and trying to compete on a global market for long-term not thinking how to uh, set up a company, you know, a dot-com or engineering company for a couple of years and then turn around and sell it. And how do we get them to resist the temptation of selling it? That's uh, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a hard, that's a hard one, a hard nut to crack because uh, in a truly free, free market system, that would self uh, correct itself, right? So the winners would be bought and the losers would go out of business. The unfortunate part is we have foreign entities, governments that are incentivizing those companies, you know, to leave. They're, they throw as much incentive as they can to get that business development, that economic development in their region, just like we do amongst our cities and states, etc. There's very little incentive to stay put or to build in a build a company where you actually live, grow up, and want to want to live, the incentive is to go to the next town over to get the incentives that they're offering, and whether it's tax breaks or other things. And I think there's just a uh, a shift that's required to cut off excessive incentives. Um, every company, Amazon, needs to pay taxes. Absolutely, absolutely. How do we how do we fix they, that? Near zero, but. And they've been incentivized to do so. And it is to their benefit and their shareholders' benefit that they got those incentives to move into those locales. However, when does it stop? Because the average employee is footing the bill for everyone. And so either there's going to be a revolution, which I don't actually think will happen, or there will be a massive increase in unionization, which is the only thing the worker has to combat, combat this action on a personal level. We need government intervention to a limited extent to protect that worker. We need Americans working in high-tech fields and in skilled trade fields, um, both of which, well, skilled trades are in decline. The high-tech are generally very short-term, but they're supplemented by a lot of H1N visa candidates because we're not giving our kids enough education and enough to drive them into those fields. So. Sure, and 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 those H one those H one H one N visas can be a positive for a company when there's a shortage. You have, uh, you know, that you're you're not giving kids. Sorry, there was a bit of delay there. Yeah, there was on my end too. Go ahead, Cole. Uh, what I was saying, there, there's kind of a uh, when the kids are growing up right now. Uh, a lot of parents are telling them you have to go for your your bachelor's and you have to go for your master's to be able to compete in in, in the world right now in the business world. And we've we've all but eliminated all tech schools, you know, from whether it's automotive tech schools, uh, tool and die. That's a huge industry right now that we've pretty much eliminated. Um, 
and that entire skill set's just gone. You can't even take classes in tool and die as much anymore. You know, CNC operators and things. A lot of this is now on the job training. And these are the types of skills that we've, we've outsourced so much that we have to bring back in. And it's, and it's not just that we need to bring them back in because we, we need them in companies. It's that parents, including myself as a parent, you know, we need to be comfortable to tell our kids that you can make a good life and it's okay to go to a tech school and it's okay to, to run a CNC machine and I'm still proud of you. Versus right now, a lot of parents I feel out there are, if you don't have your bachelor's or you don't have your master's and you're not uh, you know, at a, at a Fortune 500 company sitting in an office, then, then you're not doing good enough. Yeah, it's almost as if it's a, it's a failure for you to be working somewhere welding, making $80 an hour. And that's really, that, that, that's really a terrible message to send our kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of the folks that I know that have the most toys, if you will, are those welders that are making $80 an hour. I mean, they are, it's a, a good life. It can be a, a very fulfilling life. You get to make something. Uh, with your hands. And, and it's something that, you know, not everybody is, is fit, or, or I should say fit, is made to sit in an office. Some people need to have more activity in their day-to-day -day lifestyle to be happy. And so we do need to, you know, show those as viable alternatives. I'd love, you know, to see some of the, the girls in my, my daughter's school go an electrician or a welder or whatever that is, because it's, it's a field that can be very rewarding. It's very hands-on. And and you can build yourself a very nice life. As it stands right now in those areas, and in, in, in many areas, including southeastern Wisconsin, there are more positions than there are people to fill those positions. That, that's, that's been a problem for, for at least the last five to ten years as, as I've been watching kids graduate from school, as I've been in, investing in real estate in the area, trying to find people in, in skilled trades that can actually get things done. Uh, we found this last little real estate boom that the cost to get anything done went way up as soon as everybody rejoined the workforce because there just aren't a lot of people who have those skills. And like you said, Cole, there, there aren't the classes. There aren't the classes in, in the schools to teach to teach kids anything from swinging a hammer to, to soldering a circuit together. And when you look at our, our country historically, it was only a small percentage of people that were sitting in offices uh, making decisions, getting things done. And, and now it seems that that's what everybody wants to do. And uh, to what you said, James, not everybody's suited to do that. Well, everyone wants to be the next dot-com uh, or, or website builder or um, e-commerce site builder or whatever it is. And... and kind of have that instant success. I mean, when you see the the Zetterbergs of the world are, uh, uh, sorry, that's hockey. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Zetterberg, Zuckerberg, they they, 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 they both they both hit their goal just in a different way. So, the Zuckerbergs of the world, you know, they come up, they spend a couple of years in school, they have a good idea as a, as a sophomore, and it goes uh, to prime time. And they're billionaires. And so everyone wants to do that. You see that, oh, isn't that easy? Well, it's a lot harder than it looks, number one. And, and number two, it's still, again, not suited for everyone. Those are, they're, they're called unicorns for a reason. You might as well tell your kid that he should be working on getting into the NBA or the NFL while you're at it, because those are, all of those are, are such rarities. You, you should hear it when I explain to people that I, uh, 
I started an electronics manufacturing shop called uh, Millennium Electronics, and I was mopping the floors there uh, as I, you know, got out on a work program from high school when I started out. And uh, I took night classes and worked up, you know, through it, wave solder operations, pick in place, the whole nine yards. And uh, when, when you tell people that, uh, by the time I was 20, I had over 100 people working for me at that, at that same location. You know, a lot of them go, oh, you know, what was your degree in? What was your bachelor's in? What was your master's in? I said, no, I was 20 years old. I, I, I was taking night classes at, at the community college. You know, it, it's uh, people right away think any kind of success is tied to a four-year or a six-year degree. And, of course, you, you went later on to get the degree. I did. I, I, I did uh, later on in my, in my life here. I... Uh, was very successful working with an alternative fuel company, actually for Automotive James, <laughs> and, and uh, we we sold the company to uh, Dynamic Fuel Systems, and uh, I went back to school and finished a degree in economics from Loyola in Chicago. It was an interesting choice that after having a an engineering background and mechanical background that you choose economics to uh, pursue your degree in. What made you decide to go that direction? Uh, economics is pretty much used in, in, in everything and anything. It's, it's supply versus demand. You know, it's uh, no matter what business you're in from automotive to um, medical and military, you know, you're, you're going to use economics on a daily basis. Now, our, yeah. our military has also been really dependent on manufacturing abroad for quite a while. And, uh, I think you're doing some exciting things in the area of, of military as well. And I don't know if you can tell us or not, because you, you just mentioned military, but uh, is there anything that you can tell us about military manufacturing coming back to the United States? Um, well, by law, some of the manufacturing for military does have to be done in the U.S., but they get around some of that by having sub-assemblies done overseas. Um, for me, okay. I can go into just one portion of it, which is kind of advanced composites, carbon fibers, carbon Kevlars, things like that are being more and more researched and more and more worked on in the U.S. here. And uh, it's, it's a trickle down effect from that into the automotive industry also. And, and I'm sure James can even mm -hmm. can, can share uh, of, of their research and their work into uh, alternative materials and composite materials, because every auto manufacturer needs to get a grip on it and will have to utilize it. Yeah, we've seen a big trend. Uh, a lot of composite work coming out of Europe, and but primarily in the uh, military space coming out of Israel. And we've seen many of these companies uh, transition to the U.S. And so a lot more research uh, is being done globally on lightweighting, um, as well as um, for just structural integrity for that lightweighting. And so we're looking at uh, a number of projects within our realm in automotive to do just that. So not only reduce the weight of the vehicle, which extends our range, but also give it better characteristics of protection for the occupant. Um, so, you know, we've seen the glorious fires that, you know, happened to Tesla early on or some of the <laughs> other battery propelled products uh, early on. They okay. solved most of those problems. You're not, but you're not looking to duplicate any of those problems, are you? We do not want to duplicate any of those problems. So uh, a little blast shield uh, between the two layers uh, sure would help mitigate that problem. And that's directly from military application. I mean, they're looking for the same uh, protections, uh, obviously for a, a much ma more massive uh, intensity uh, of hit, but it's really that technology is starting to migrate or migrating in two ways. 
from the military application into industry. And then they're turning around and asking industry uh, to help them uh, make manufacture more expeditiously those materials. And so it's a kind of a two-way street. And we're looking at that, that benefit, uh, in my case, uh, for both the protection side coming down from the military uh, technology and then us applying it in a more rapid fashion. And we can feed that back towards those kinds of applications. Well, it certainly it certainly is a deep and multifaceted and exciting subject. Uh, the bottom line is that the two of you are creating jobs here in the United States at a time when we're going to be needing them, at a time when everybody is screaming about unemployment and watching the numbers skyrocket, and you're going to be replacing service sector jobs with, with, with some skilled jobs that people are going to be able to make careers out of. And I really applaud the both of you for putting your brain power to work to accomplish that because it's something that is so desperately needed. Uh, I just wanted to tell people one more time uh, for you, James, before we get to the uh, top of the hour, if you want to take a look at these vehicles, and they are pretty, you can go to HerculesEV.com. That's Hercules, kind of like yours truly when you're thinking about my physique. <laughs> HerculesEV.com. And uh, Cole, is there, is there a website where people can look at your products, or is that still a work in process as we speak? Uh, my largest client that we work with, which I'm on their website, is Lumoptic. You can look up uh, lumoptic.com, which is L-U-M-O-P-T-I-K.com. Fantastic. Both of you, thank you very much for, for coming onto the show. Uh, it, it, it's exciting to hear this and see this and, of course, uh, know that there are, there are jobs coming back to the United States and, even more importantly, to the Midwest. And uh, I look forward with talking to the two of you more and and. And I hope that you consider southeastern Wisconsin when uh, you're uh, when, when you're looking at some of these operations because we have a bright skilled workforce. You are listening Thanks. to AM ten fifty. You are listening to Get Real with Ralph. Get Real with Ralph on AM ten fifty WLIP. Well, this is uh, we we are entering week number six. Is it of quarantine? Is it number six? Because uh, I'm on day fifty. I'm on day fifty-three of uh, basically, you know, not semi-lockdown. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I, I, yep. I just I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to go. Fifth straight um, week that the that we've been under this safer right, at home right. order, and I, I'm I'm sure you've seen as everybody else that the uh, state supreme court heard arguments on Wednesday. And uh, there's been a lot of controversy about it. And uh, w w without getting into who's right or wrong, I will, I will articulate the two different sides' uh, arguments. And the argument that the state legislature is making is that it is uh, state law in Wisconsin that the governor can declare a state of emergency for up to 60 days, which he did okay. on March 10th. And after that, uh, any extension to a state of emergency has to be extended by the state legislature. The second piece of that argument is when there is an emergency, uh, the Department of Health Services has the right to put in place rules as it has put in place uh, with, with the Safer Home Initiative and closing what they deem to be non-essential businesses and so on and so forth. The argument ends up being whether or not 
the Department of Health Services has the right to declare this in any emergency based on the Webster's Dictionary definition of emergency or whether they only have the right to make those rules during a state of emergency as declared by the governor and or extended by the state legislature. The state legislature's argument is that you can't give an unelected bureaucrat the right to just make rules whenever they want. There has to be this this legislative or at least an executive oversight of that state of emergency, and seeing as how the 60 days would have been up and they hadn't extended it, then uh, there is no longer a declared state of emergency, and they no longer have the authority to make these orders. They did, however, ask the state Supreme Court that if they were going to rule in their favor, that they stay that ruling for a period of six days so that it would give the legislature and the governor time to come together and come up with something so that it didn't just automatically expire and there end up people go back to work. And that's what you think of that. Not at all. Not at all. That that was very good. I'm just, you know, um, so I'm, I'm, a com- I'm, I'm a comedian. It's it's a tough one because you have it is. It's, you, very, you it's, very, medical, it's very tough. You have medical professionals who are now coming yeah, out and just right. saying that this sheltering in place is, is the wrong thing to do. And yeah, yeah. at first, it was just a couple of them, and then they would get discredited by different. Uh, different organizations within the medical field. But now there have literally been thousands of doctors that have signed petitions yeah. and come out and given yeah. speeches yeah. saying this this isn't the right way to go about this. There's, there's got there's got to be there's got to be a way. I mean, it, 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 I don't know if, if it does it have to be that complicated. Is it, is it really that complicated to get things moving along? Well, I, I had um I, I had our our state legislator on uh, last week uh, from the sixty fifth district, and 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 I asked a question. I didn't. I don't feel I really got an answer to this question. The question I asked is, is it safer for me to go to my grocery store to Menards than it is to for me to go to Mike Bjorn's, for example, to buy a pair of pants because I can walk in Target and buy a pair of pants right now, but there's thousands of people there exchanging germs, right. and there's 10 people walking into this place. And his answer was, mm-hmm. well, we're going to be opening up pretty soon, which really wasn't an answer to that question. Uh, and I don't expect that he would have the answer to that question because he's not a medical professional. Sure. But, I, but what I would expect is for our leaders to start pondering these questions. Why are the rules that we have in place in place, and are they actually right. making a difference? And right. if not, what, what can we do? Yeah. But unfortunately, when it, comes to, when it comes to elected officials or people that have power, they make an initial decision, and then it's almost right. as if they don't want to be wrong. But yep. they were supposed to be wrong. This was something right, we didn't know right, anything about. Right. And so that paradigm has to shift. Uh, we have to start sure, looking at sure. it instead of right or wrong as this is a fluid changing situation on the ground. Right, and right. what can we, we do to fix minute. it? Yeah. So that, you know, that's about where you're, you, you can watch the clock even from there, Jim. I got to say, that's pretty I'm, good. I'm, I'm actually producing a little bit from here. Just make sure it, we're it, on the clock. So it, it, we got, we got to wind it up. We do have to wind it up. And I, I was watching it <laughs> as I spoke. So I knew we were at. But I know, I know, the, dude. I'm just with you. The most important thing is everybody is just stay safe and uh, yes. that, that they stay, stay, stay safe. You know, whatever, um, whatever side of the argument that you're on, don't treat the people on the other side like they're demons because they're not. Not. They just have a different opinion on how to make people healthy or how empathy. to stay healthy. It'd be uh, empathy and compassion for Absolutely. each other. Jim, thanks for being on with me. Yeah, yeah. We'll see what you do next week. Maybe come to the studio for sure in two weeks. For sure in two weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to Get Real with Ralph, whether it be on the radio, on our YouTube channel at GetRealWithRalph.com or on our Facebook page. And uh, tune in next week. 
as uh, we battle our way back to a country and a state and a community that's in business. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Stay safe and good night. You know, big deal, darling, to say.